0: Thank you all for being here. Um, I will start off, honestly, I I wrote a a talk that's geared towards the the younger crowd, um, uh, uh, but the the median age is a bit higher than my intended audience, it seems. So, uh, you know, it'll have advice, and I feel awkward saying, well, you know, you should do it. Uh, Anyway. I just want to thank uh, Anne and President McLean for inviting me um, and for the president's hospitality. I'm staying in the hacienda, and it's um, it's heavenly. Um, I just found out because of some uh, uh, Boeing Seven Thirty Seven Max uh, snafu, I, um, I I'll get to, my flights have been canceled, uh, so I have to t- fly out one more night. But I was actually p- pretty happy about that because I'm I, I'm enjoying the, the hacienda. I wish I could just. I don't know, rent it out for a year. Uh, (laughs) um, So, uh, again, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Um, um, Anne sort of gave the preface, one of the two prefatory remarks that I wanted to give, which is why write a conversion memoir now. And I'll tell you, um, I I didn't intend, when I began uh, instruction with a priest in London um, to become a Roman Catholic, I didn't intend to come out, so to speak, publicly as a Catholic. uh, at least not until after I was baptized, but uh, as Anne alluded to, then two months into my period of instruction, uh, something horrible happened across the English Channel when when two jihadists inspired by uh, Islamic State assailed um, Father Hamel's um, church in Normandy and, and slit his throat while he was celebrating Mass. And so I was so moved by that that um, I felt like I had to do something. So, like many m- millennials, I uh, that meant that I created a hashtag on Twitter, and I just wrote, um, you know, uh, I am Jack Hamel, which was similar to the Je suis Charlie hashtag that emerged after the the massacre at uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, one a couple of years earlier than that. Um, <clears throat> and it, it, that tweet went viral. Thousands of people uh, retweeted it. You know, and saw it, uh, obviously, and many others. Uh, and then it made its way to Facebook, and, and lots of people, uh, you know, well-intentioned people, including Catholic and Christian, uh, let's say Protestant journalists, who then went on um, Wikipedia, since I already had a public profile, and looked up my background, and they noticed that I was from Iran, so they just sort of surmised that, ah, here was a true-believing Muslim instantly converted by, by this horrific act, um, and so, you know, the blood, you know, everyone tweeted the saying of Tertullians, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, which, you know, in fact, wasn't true, um, and, and I was overwhelmed by, by having to respond to all the queries and constantly clarifying, no, 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 that's not, that's not why I became Catholic, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it also made it seem like you're, you're sort of denigrating the martyrdom of Father Hamel, which I wasn't, but it, it just was that it wasn't true. Uh, so, I was very lucky that then Father Fessio at Ignatius Press uh, and Mark Brumley just you know found me through social media and said, "Hey, you want to tell the full story and that 's how from Fire by Water" came about uh, and that 's the story that i'll i will will be sharing bits from today, including some excerpts from the book. The second prefatory remark is that as as also and also alluded it 's a very kind of intellectual memoir it details my way through um, a whole bunch of ideas that culminate, that begin roughly with Friedrich Nietzsche and end with a very different German, um, Joseph Ratzinger, um, and uh, that's the journey, and it's, as I said, it's very books heavy, which is appropriate for this place, but um, it, it, it would be, I would feel terrible if people came away from the book as though it were an account of my heroic efforts to read and reason my way to the faith. And um, I think it will become clear that it, it ultimately that it's the divine grace that takes the initial action, and all the reading and reasoning that follow are my reaction to it. So with those out of the way, um, I'll, just, I'll start at the beginning. Um, uh, as you heard, I was born in Tehran, Iran. I happen to have been born there six years to the day the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his Parisian exile to <laughs> topple the Shah's westernizing, secularizing regime and herald the new Islamic Republic of Iran. I'm a child, in other words, of Iran's 1979 Islamic Revolution. Under Khomeini's regime, which celebrated its fortieth anniversary last month, God and politics were inextricable. Politics was God and God was politics. And my and my family members all detested that. This, even though my family had initially supported the revolution. When I was a boy, my birthday, as I said, February first, nineteen eighty five, six th- years to the date to Khomeini's return, was the subject of a long-running joke in our family. Uh, One of our relatives, uh, who had been a uh, a gregarious retired police colonel under the Shah's regime, uh, who not only hated the new regime but hated Islam itself. He was of that generation of secularists exemplified by Reza Shah in Iran and Ataturk in Turkey who uh, came to associate progress and modernity and all that was good with, with unbelief. So he hated Islam. He would often ask me at our get-togethers, when were you born, Sarab? And he knew the answer, and I knew that he knew the answer, but I p- would play along, and I'd say, you know, February 1st, and he would hold his nose and say, "Piff poof, poof, you brought the imam with you. And what that meant is that I bore the disagreeable scent of, of Khomeini. And the punchline didn't need explaining because that sentiment was very widely shared in our urbane, middle-class, dare I say, bohemian milieu. Having supported the revolution, as I said, my family had come to bitterly regret it. The collapse of 2,500 years of Persian monarchy didn't win popular rule for Iran's middle classes as they had desired, but it also made life much more miserable than it had been under the last Shah, Mohammad Raza Pahlavi, the king of kings. For my maternal grandfather, it was nationalism and anti-Western grievance that had lighted the uh, revolutionary spark. He was a mild-mannered civil servant who worked in the most important economic institution in the country, the National Iranian Oil Company. It still is. Um, but for him, 1979 was about restoring Iran's lost honor after millennia of grievances real and and some perceived suffered at the hands of outsiders, going back to Alexander the Great's conquest of Akhobanid Persia, uh, which he remembered bitterly, <laughs> though he wasn't around there. Um, and you know he he's a he's a certain Persian type, which especially in California you may actually encounter um, people who, who typically Iranians who uh, paranoia being a, a profound streak in the in the political culture who tend to view um, every mishap as the work of nefarious outsiders, mainly the Brit- British. Um, and so for him it was obvious that the revolution would would uh, would, would restore Iran's rightful place among nations. But for my parents, 1979 held other pl- promises. Uh, the Pahlavi monarchs had forged a modern nation state out of the shambolic remains of the Persian Empire. But like their boomer counterparts, baby boomer counterparts here in the West, you know, in, either in San Francisco or Paris or New York or everywhere else, um, that uh, prosperity, the consumerist prosperity that followed um, World War II, didn't make them less but more restive. And in in their case, contact with the West only heightened their sense of inadequacy. So they read hot-headed French philosophers and concluded that the thing to do, the answer to their dissatisfactions, lay in making revolution, in raising traditional hierarchies and erecting an entirely new order. Now, they had no sense of what that would mean, what kind of new order they'd bring about. Um, But the... And nor did old-school nationalists, really, like my grandfather. Not so with Khomeini's followers. Uh, among the conservative merchants of the bazaar and the, and the pious provincial multitudes, they had a very clear idea of what they wanted. Um, these were mo- mostly people who, because of the rapid industrialization that had happened under the Shah and the rapid urbanization, had suddenly found themselves um, first of all moving into the big city and finding a big city that totally offended all of their sensibilities so um, you know the Shah, in a way in his well intentioned but I think ultimately really foolish uh, uh, Sense of what modernity would mean for Iran had even created, well, not co- created, but tolerated a a, a legal, semi legal red light district known as the Citadel, um, and so you imagine people coming from the provinces, um, thickly steeped in in uh, in Shiite Muslim culture, and suddenly they're they're in much closer quarters than they ever had been in. in in the provinces, and and they're confronted with a degree of moral looseness that um, uh, totally, as I said, shocked their sensibilities. So um, that really, I've come to conclude, was one of the main causes of the revolution, which is why, as much as I wish the Shah hadn't been toppled, I can see why he was and the mistakes that he made. So immediately Khomeini and his followers, uh, as you know, laid the foundations of a total state. Khomeini outlied outlied political parties, purged the institutions, dismantled independent labor unions, summarily executed his erstwhile secular and leftist allies. The hijab became mandatory for women, dancing, drinking, foreign movies and music, and most other forms of fun were now prescribed. The new Iran was a land of conspiracies and denunciations, wild utopian fantasies and pervasive dysfunction where each day began and ended with a litany of the names of the newly executed enemies of the revolution barked out on state radio by, by men with mad foghorn voice, voices. So all that led me to conclude being a child of two revolutions. Again, remember the 1979 revolution about re-Islamizing the country and 1968, which was a revolution in our home, which was about uh, uh, demolishing traditional barriers in the sense that my parents, you know, the only moral instruction they really ever handed down to me was be yourself, Um, those two forces and the clash between the interior world, the world inside, behind our closed doors, and the world outside, ultimately led me to conclude that I was an atheist. I remember the circumstances only vaguely. I was on holiday with my parents in northern Iran by the Caspian Sea. Many middle-class Iranian families have owned villas right by the Caspian, and we had friends who did as well, so we joined them. And I always remember the Sharia law demanded strict separation of the sexes at sea, So at most public beaches, there would be curtains that created separate men's and women's areas, and everywhere there were banners that read, my sister, mind your veil, my brother, mind your eyes. But my parents and their friends usually found hidden corners where men and women could share the beach away from the watchful eyes of the Islamic Republic's morality committees, which were called the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Discouragement, or something like that, of Vice. But on on previous occasions, I've I've flipped those two when I've told that story, and uh, it's it's a Freudian slip. My parents and their friends would even bring bottles of Arak, Arak, which is Iran's searing homemade spirit in defiance of official prohibition. And if the morality police showed up in their signature Toyota 4x4s, all wasn't lost. As it turned out, most of the officers could be bribed to overlook such iniquities. So they would give the adults in the party a stern scolding, they would make excuses, apologize, vow to never to do it again, and then the officer in charge would say, well, if you're having such a good time, give us a taste of your candy or give us a taste of your pastries. And what that really meant, there were no pastries, but what that meant is it was a signal for the men in the group to pool their cash from their wallets and pay off the, the officers. There was always a non-zero chance that the officer in charge was a true believer and then the flogging would be an order that would made your, make your back look permanently like challah bread. One night during that summer of 1997, between when I was in the borderland between childhood and pubescence, I began thinking seriously about all of this for the first time and religion, I concluded, was little more than a ritual of public hypocrisy, one that I'd be expected to perform. Well, not if I could help it. Um, as it happened, I knew that my, my mother had, and I had been invited to uh, get a green card through our, uh, an uncle who had settled in the US uh, many years earlier. Uh, and uh, uh, so that gave me a certain courage and boldness I would have otherwise lacked had I known that I'd be staying in Iran. Um, so I said, I, you know, told myself that I was an unbel- uh, unbeliever, and it was as simple as that. Well, there was more to it. Living in an Islamic theocracy where God appears only in the form of floggings and judicial amputations, scowling ayatollahs and secret police, has a way of souring you on things divine. Years later, I read a wise young Iranian dissident who argued that if the Islamic Republic collapsed one day, it would leave behind the world's largest community of atheists, which unfortunately I think is true. My turn away from God then had something to do with the nature of Islam, certainly the Islam of Khomeini and his followers, a religion that never proposes but only imposes, and that by the sword or by the suicide bomber or the Kalashnikov-wielding fanatic. Across wide swaths of the Islamic world, And in Islamic history, the religion of Muhammad is and has been synonymous with law and political dominion without love or mercy. As the French philosopher Pierre Manon has written, Islam is a starkly objective objective faith, and where it spreads, a set of authoritative norms and a political community follow. And to assent to the law and to the community is to assent to Islam. There's little room for the individual conscience and free will for reason and intellect in that assent. So there I was in a little villa on the Caspian, cursing God and professing my disbelief in him. And I cursed God as a sort of test. Um, I cursed the God who required a police state to enforce his whims and whose agents were willing to cut corners for the right price. And I expected, or half expected, my curses and blasphemous declarations that night to conjure up, I I, I don't know, to to have a bolt or, uh, you know, zap me from the sky or at least to conjure up demons uh, who would drag me to a kind of netherworld never to be seen again. But my curses produces no such thing. There were no immediately discernible effects. It would take me years, decades even, to notice that I had been dragged or had dragged myself into a world of a kind. And although there were no cartoonish demons inhabited, inhabited that netherworld, there were demons, and it was a world all the same. So not long after that, I immigrated to the West with my mother. And the miseries and the unbelief inflicted on, on me would eventually take me to a small chapel in central London, where I would be received into the Roman Catholic Church in December 2016 with detours through Nietzsche, Camus, Sartre, Marxism, Leninism, postmodernism, poststructuralism, and a brief evangelical spell. So how did I get from the place where I started to where I ended? Well, that's a story that I tell in full in my memoir, for sale outside. Um, (laughs) But for our purposes, I I guess I want to highlight two things. Again, these are bits excerpted from the book that led me from a really quite dark spiritual uh, place to the grace and order that I found in the church. That's my personal definition of Catholicism. Uh, the faith is grace and order in perfect harmony, and that's what I found. The first lesson, and I, again, like I said, I wrote this for a young audience, but the beach beckons. The first was that uh, to, to listen to the prophets in one's life. If you think back to your own lives, you could probably identify prophets who moved you, who spoke truth to you when you least wanted to hear it, who called you to be your best self. And I'm guessing they probably didn't come with a hat or a t-shirt that wrote, you know, across it a label that said prophet. For me, one important prophetic influence in my life was my Teach for America roommate, um, Yossi. That's not his real name but for our purposes he's Yossi. Um, uh, uh, so after college, I, gr- I joined Teach for America because I had vague ideas about putting my Leftist idealism into action. Remember, I had become, uh, by this point, I had become quite a serious Marxist. And because I really had no idea what to do with my life, and joining an elite teacher corps sounded good in an abstract sense. Yossi was a 22 year old Israeli American who had joined Teach for America from the University of Pennsylvania. English wasn't his language, yet he spoke it eloquently, albeit with a heavy Israeli accent, which I won't imitate for your sake and, and mine. He, he wasn't a child of privilege. He'd hustled to put himself through the Ivy League, and yet we bonded over the fact that neither of us could stand the TFA diversity training regimen. Um, oddly enough, the diversity treatment, uh, uh, training regimen that you, uh, T- Teach for America members go through before going out to the classrooms that uh, they work in, um, for, for those of you, everyone knows who T- what Teach for America is, right? It's a, rec- it's a core of recent college, college graduates who are sent to needy classrooms across the country. But before you go out, you go through this very intense training period. In my case, it was in Houston. Um, and uh, uh, among the training aspects is a kind of diversity training where you each person sits around and you unpack your privileges. Uh, uh, which at the time, what's funny is, I, the, ideologically, I had imbibed those that, that sets of ideas about the fact that you know, there are no true statements you can say about people. Everything is a reflection of class, race, uh, sexual, and gender dynamics. I, I'd really bought into that idea, but once it actually I saw it in practice, intersectionality, in, in a diversity training session, I found it ridiculous. Um, you know, it, it, the idea was that if you, were, if you fit certain identity boxes, then you could claim certain grievances. And if you didn't, then you... Um, uh, uh, you had to sort of self-flagellate for all the privileges that um, our you know, inherently awful society had had bestowed upon you. Um, but the thing was, I, you know, I, and I technically, I guess, as a quote-unquote Muslim immigrant in post-9/11 America, I was expected to be one of the ones who claims a grievance. But I, I didn't really have a grievance. I'd never been. I had been in airports where I'm standing there, and the per, the person who gets the random check is like this, you know, old lady. <laughs> and I, um, and at worst, I mean, if I encountered an awkward situation, you know, this was the immediate post-9-11 years, I would say, look, I, you know, I come from the heart of the axis of evil. And I would put people at ease, everyone would laugh. And so I, this, this vision of America as, 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 as deeply oppressive had never, it wasn't true in my case. Uh, and, and Yossi and I bonded over our, our sort of sarcastic disdain for, for these diversity sessions. His voice would squeak, and he punctuated comments with wild hand gestures, like you saw me do as well, that instantly recalled a region that we both hailed from. And it happened that Yossi and I were both to teach at the same middle school in Brownsville, Texas, right, on the U.S.-Mexico border. And when the training session period was over, we were shipped from Houston to, to Brownsville, and we both moved into a roomy bungalow together with a couple of other Teach for America members. Yossi, who'd majored in English, was hired to teach the same subject to 6th graders. And uh, without giving it much thought, I checked the box on my application saying that I wished to work with children with disabilities. And the school that hired me took me up on the offer. I knew zilch about how to help kids with autism, dyslexia, behavioral disorders, and the like, but what I lacked in expertise, I made more than made up for with the carpetbagger's uh, smugness, and braggadocio, right? That sense that We are the kids from elite universities coming to this benighted place, and that really puffed you up. And Yossi could be prone to similar snobbery, but the difference was that he really spent every waking hour making sure that his kids could read and write at, at or above grade level. He would get to his class before dawn and stay long after the final bell. There weren't enough hours during the regular school day for all the assessing and grading and mentoring and lesson planning that he felt he needed to do. And when he returned home late at night, his clothes would be soaked with sweat. He wouldn't come out for drinks with us, but on the rarest of occasions, no matter how much the rest of us cajoled him. The same couldn't be said for me. Being an effective special education teacher, as you know, especially in our model of special education, which is called inclusion, uh, the special education teacher has to follow um, uh, his students' His or her students into regular education classrooms, and that required an immense amount of collaboration with re- the re- regular education teachers. And I quickly despaired at the enormity of the problem. I, you know, hung up nice posters in my room that said, uh, you know, and said, um, you know uh, 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 pictures of Muhammad Ali and and Cesar Chavez, thinking that that the kids are going to be fired up. But that wasn't enough. It was it was. Uh, and, and so what ended up actually happening, and usually my aides and I did most of the work for the special ed students, which defeated the whole purpose of special education, which was to help the students with disabilities master the same knowledge and skills as the other students in modified form. And when the final bell rang, I drove straight home, having left my students no better or no worse than they had been without me, and spent much of the fir- my first year of my stint going out to bars and and, and chasing hookups. But the interesting fact was that Yoshi was the one who came under fire from the school administration while I was seen as the star. And the reason was that the school administration often was happy to see the students just pass. Um, And so he came under a lot of fire because he actually insisted that they learn and retake his exams as long as it took for them to actually learn the content. Whereas I realized you could thrive in a school administration by just talking a big game, you know, in the faculty meetings, being like, "Yes, I'm, I'm developing new instructional strategies," <laughs> and 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 if a principal saw that, that, like, that's the guy, that's he's going somewhere. And at one point, Yossi came close to being fired because of his 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 obstinance, his uh, because of his, he just wouldn't bend. Uh, so I would you know, I'd ask him, because he had already been pre-accepted to Harvard Law, and I would say, look, don't you want to go to Harvard Law after this? Wouldn't it look bad if you had to disclose that you'd been fired from your Teach for America gig? And, and he would say, whatever might come, might come, but I'd be lying if I passed students who, don't, who aren't prepared to be passed. Well, weeks and months passed by, and Yossi wasn't fired. He stood his ground, and in the end, it was the school administration that had to bend to his will rather than the other way around. And by then, I was utterly in awe of my roommate. It really was the case that even in the direst classrooms, teachers could make tremendous gains with students by emphasizing hard work and honesty and tough discipline. But there was much more to it than that. Yossi's refusal to countenance a lie, no matter how inconvenient the truth, marked a milestone in my moral education. I resolved to, then, after a while, I resolved to pour myself into the job, and I didn't manage to keep the resolution every day. Indeed, I failed more often than not. But even the thought, as well as the attendant anguish uh, when I fell short of these daily vows, were something new for me. And all this may not sound earth-shattering to you, but it was for me. And there were bigger consequences or uh, ramifications than just the actual education uh, question. First of all, it suggested that there were gradations of character in all human circumstances that there was great value to old moralistic notions that I used to sneer at. Remember, I was the atheist and then the Marxist that said morality is just a function of... Um, the, the, as you know, the, the uh, historical materialism says that people believe certain things or say certain things or produce certain kinds of art or have a certain kind of culture because of the material circumstances and the balance of social forces and the means and modes of production so on and so forth. Um, I had always believed that. Um, but then, in this situation in a real world setting, I saw that actually the someone's ideas or their character or their sense of virtue and vice could shift the material order of things and therefore the morality let's say comes before material circumstances and can and can order the material world. Um, so, you know, I began to compare the teachers in the classrooms. I would, I would go to regular education classrooms where the teacher would just sort of slouch behind the computer and, and just do her own, play solitaire, or do online shopping, and the kids would be, um, uh, uh, you know, spitballs would be flying and so forth. But in Yossi's class, first of all, they were greeted with a firm handshake. Then they would sit down. Um, there was very rigid structure. Everyone knew what was expected and merits and demerits for good and bad conduct, respectively. Um and it would be the same kids behaving differently between the, the two teachers. And that again taught me that character, character and virtue precede material circumstances. The ideologies I had promoted and wallowed in at that, until that point put the cart before the horse. People and their con- conduct weren't reducible to class, language, race, and collective identities. There was something more in the virtuous, a capacity to recognize the good and a desire to spread it around them, to bring order where disorder prevailed. And the cr- kids grasped the passion for order in teachers like Yossi and they reacted accordingly. Indeed, you could have teleported his classroom to a country in, say, East Asia and an unbiased observer, even one who spoke a different language, would have felt compelled to say that that teacher is promoting order and excellence. And the lesson held across life's realms. In Teach for America circles, he had a reputation for honesty and constancy. He was a trustworthy friend to whom one could turn in happiness or distress. By contrast, I probably came across as a selfish, aloof, imperious, and it may have been fun to shoot the philosophical breeze with me over a bottle of wine, but no one would say of me, here's a man you can rely on. And when I subjected myself to this kind of interior scrutiny, as I was beginning to do, I had to admit that the impression reflected an underlying truth. And these character contrasts, in turn, implied the existence of a universal standard of good conduct and objective morality. And oddly enough, the objective morality first arose, or that sense of that there exists an objective morality arose, not from any external source, but from a voice, or in my case, a whisper inside. And so I began to ask, well, where did that voice or whisper originate? And was it coincidence that my former worldview, the one that said morality is a function of power, history, biology, language, and so forth, gave me an alibi for shutting out the whisper when its remonstrances became inconvenient? In time, the search for these questions for answers to these questions would force me to think think deeply because that's the phenomenon I'm obviously talking about, the phenomenon of conscience. The voice inside that urged me to do good and shun evil, I would conclude, years later, gave unimpeachable testimony to the existence of a personal God, indeed of the God of the Bible, but not yet. And to follow that full line, you'll have to check out the book. The second lesson, which you probably don't need because I'm speaking at Thomas Aquinas College, uh, uh, but uh, many of your, por- your, your peers certainly do, is to read the great books slowly and carefully and truly listen to them before dismissing them. I think our, our age has this presentist bias, right, that um, we think, or our, let's say our contemporary culture imagines that the arrow of time itself ratifies ideas. Have you, in the common parlance, you've he- heard this, when people say, it's 2019, come on, as though the fact of it being 2019 had some moral... Uh, value in itself, um, and I was very much sub- in, 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 throughout college i didn 't really read any of the uh, the great books right i didn 't read Aristotle or Augustine or saint Thomas not that i didn 't know because they were there, but because I thought that that Freud Nietzsche and Marx had debunked those ideas. so what was the point like that modernity has come, and, and all those old ideas are, are, are museum pieces. so why would you study the intellectual equivalent of a sort of museum piece? Uh, Uh, But then, you know, uh, uh, eventually I did. And I began, because I had been a Marxist, I began with the great sort of canon of anti-communist literature. And one of the most formative books, which is not on the same level as some of the authors I just mentioned, mentioned, like Aristotle, St. Thomas, but nevertheless is a very important book in my personal intellectual development, one that I wish I had read sooner than I did, is Arthur Kessler's anti-communist masterpiece, Darkness at Noon it offered both a piercing diagnosis of the totalitarian tendency and a spiritual blueprint for resisting it. The Hungarian-born British writer, himself an ex-Marxist like me, presented a thinly novelized account of the Stalinist show trials of the 1930s, and the victims of those trials had most of them been former revolutionaries themselves, many of them from the founding generation of Bolshevism, who had fallen out of favor with, with the party for various reasons. The protagonist, Nicholas Rubashov, is one such figure. He's a veteran apparatchik who, in his own heyday as a a Communist Party official, hadn't hesitated to ruin others if the party required it. But now, as the story begins, he's outlived his his usefulness to, quote, that mocking oracle they called history. Arrested in the dead of night, he's targeted for, quote, physical liquidation. But Stalinism's twisted logic required its victims to fess up to a slate of elaborate charges before they could be put to death. And the whole question at the heart of the novel is, will Rubashov submit to one last lie for the party's sake? And his trouble is that after a lifetime of service to the communist party, he still clings to the thin remnants of his conscience. In prison, the ghosts of those he's destroyed haunt him, and nor can he let go of a certain grammatical fiction, which he means the first-person perspective, that is to say of personhood and individual dignity, but his inter- interrogators have no such scruples. They believe that they're, quote, tearing the old skin off mankind and giving it a new one, in the gruesome words of one of the interrogators. Their deadly, godless cult justifies all means for obtaining secular salvation. And Rubashov himself had been a high priest in that cult, but now sleep-deprived and under torture and nearly delirious, and this is the remarkable bit in a book written by an ex-Marx- a, a, a Jewish ex-Marxist, is that he thinks back, to a certain Pieta, a scene of the Blessed Virgin, holding the do- dead body of her son. And Rubishov had run across this uh, sculpture when he was still in an, uh, good standing with the party, but he never paused to study it. The memorav- memory of it now reminds him that, quote, perhaps it did not suit man to be completely freed from the old bonds, from the steadying breaks of thou shalt not. So in this remarkable moment in one novel, as the character... Uh, character's rendezvous with the historical dialectic comes to an end, literally, the hardened communist pays tribute to the Ten Commandments and to the cross. A single novel, a single sentence, unlocked a great truth for me. Man needed the setting breaks of God's laws and the sacrifice of the one who stands in for all of history's victims and perpetrators. The old thou shalt nots and then Jesus's heartbreaking sacrifice, summed up in the Pieta, were a bulwark against totalitarianism Far from being an oppressor, the God who reveals himself in the moral law and who condescended to be scourged and crucified by his creation was a liberator. To restrain man's hand, he had to be bound by, by some absolute authority outside himself. Un- unbounded by such an absolute other, man would follow the siren song of political evil, not to mention personal evil, and use any means in perso- pursuit of his ends. It was wrong to think that belief in God was impossible impo- after Auschwitz, as I had thought, You know, again, it's one of those Uh, thoughts that run through your mind if you read a few books uh, uh, of the 20th century, you know, can't believe in God after Auschwitz and Hiroshima. Contrary. It was impossible, it was wrong to think that belief in God was impossible after Auschwitz. Rather, Auschwitz had been made possible because God had been pronounced dead, and all the old thou shalt nots declared null and void. The democratic West, the society that I now found myself in, started from different premises, namely that the human person is rights-bearing and possessed of an inherent dignity that rulers couldn't transgress. I had lived long enough now by in both Iran and the United States to tell the difference. Six or seven years earlier, I had been under the Ayatollah's thumb. Now that was real oppression. The United States had welcomed me, and in a short time, I'd gone from, pov- from the poverty of being fresh off the boat to joining an elite teacher training corps. In between, I'd backed a political movement. Remember, I had been a Marxist that was dedicated, technically, to overthrowing America's economic system. Now, what would have happened to me had I flirted with, with similar ideas under an Islamic republic? Well, no doubt I would have had my fingernails pulled in, somewhere in the bowels of Tehran's Evan prison. prison. And well, why, why was the West different? How was it possible to uphold the dignity of the person if there wasn't something special about his origins? Why should rulers feel constrained in their power? It seemed to me at that point that to the extent that Western democracies were morally superior, it was in large part because they still hewed to a certain Judeo-Christian line, however faded. In this sense, Nietzsche, whom I mentioned was my first teenage idol when other people were idolizing I don't know, football players or whatever, I picked Nietzsche, had been right. Egalitarian democracy was a product or an extension of biblical religion, and that was a good thing. The real peril was that Western democracy would detach itself from its religious underpinnings. The flower thus uprooted would wilt. These were, for the most part, intuitive and rudimentary conclusions on my part. And again, when I reached these conclusions through a sort of series of reasoning and, and reading, I did not then say I believe in this God. But I could see its value, the value of this particular God. I still only had the vaguest notions of what biblical religion stood for, in itself, and as a wellspring spring of political truth. But my intuitions were fundamentally sound, and the more philosophy and history that I read, the more convinced I became that the West's humane, free civilization couldn't be understood or sustained outside the spiritual soil that nurtured it. If I serv- savored the decent society around me, that, that I saw around me, I had to give credit to the religious ideals that had given birth to it. Appreciating the Jewish and Christian foundations of the West didn't make me a Christian, of course, but it helped. The rafter... When I was asked about my religious views, I no longer bragged about my atheism. Instead, I would say, I'm not fortunate enough to be a person of faith, but I admire people who are. Indeed, I admired the God man lying dead in his mother's embrace. He moved me to tears even. But I, did I believe in him at that point? Not yet. Thank you very much. <clears throat> <Sure. laughs> Sorry. Good. No
1: questions. Yeah, okay, good. Okay. Um, Mr. will um, take some questions. We have students, at least one student, two students, with um, microphones. So raise your hand, and when they call on you, they'll come to you with a microphone.
2: So Rob, thanks so much for coming. Uh, we really appreciate it. The, Greater college communities, very appreciative of you coming here. So, thank you. And it's also my hope that our sons are at TAC yes. together as students in 16 years. So, uh, my question is: <clears throat> um, You've come into the church at a very interesting time, yeah. right? Um, and so I know that you know you write on the topic, and um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts generally on what's next for the church? You were one year almost after the summer of shame. Trust seems to be at an all-time low in the leadership of the church. And so, you know, generally speaking, especially with regards to the state of Catholic education, some of the demographic trends that are happening, I'd like to hear your thoughts generally on what's next for the church, especially in America.
0: You know, I would say... um First of all, I came into the church with, you know, eyes wide open. I, had, I was received into the church 14 years after the first outbreak of the of the sexual abuse crisis. Um, and, you know, as you know, Christian anthropology is not naive, contrary to what the secular world thinks. It begins, our, our, our sort of philosophical anthropology begins with the fall. Before we even know Adam and Eve, they sort of mess it up. And so... Uh, it's very easy for me, both as a as an intellectual matter and as a emotional, spiritual matter, to say that a, a divinely founded institution can be populated by fallen people. Um, and also, as the year has gone on, I, I, I've also increasingly have come to say that you know, um, I I could be MacCarrick. You know, my favorite sins are different ones, but you know, any of us could be McCarrick. Any of us could be a cruel concentration camp guard, but for grace. Um and the grace is is also found in the church through the sacraments which are there and will always be there. So I have this great you know, I, I'm hope but also even optimism. I know people say I'm I'm hopeful but not optimistic, but I also find I, I have a lot of hope as uh, it, sorry, I have a lot of optimism as well because um you know I happen to be in, in New York and you see, you know, lots of faithful young Catholics who are rediscovering um the church's just repository of beauty in the liturgy, the, of of tradition, uh, which they badly need in a very disordered contemporary culture. So I just think the only thing I mean I would say is is to the extent that you know our pastors I guess could do better. And, and I, I've when I first was received into the church, by the way, I was I had, you know, memorized a few prayers in Latin and read a few important books, and I, felt, I was like, wow the, you know, cardinal so-and-so is wrong about this and that. And I've actually stopped in a way because I'm like, okay, theology is above my pay grade. As a journalist, I can talk about things like the scandals and so forth. That's well within my vocation, but I don't, I, you know, I don't go into areas that are above my pay grade. In some ways, I pay, pray, and obey. Um, uh, uh, but, but, but as far as our pastors go, I think it's very important to, to be a counter-witness to the culture, the culture is full of disorder, and everywhere you see longing for, for order, for continuity, for tradition, and those are those are words, adjectives that best attach to the Catholic Church. Um, and so, um, that urge to say if we if we become a little bit like more like the world, that the young people will come, I think, is a huge mistake. Um, and um, you know, you see it here. You know, you see the mass today, packed pews, beautiful liturgy. It'll be fine. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> There's one over here, too, this gentleman. Hi. I, I've always been curious about the whole Shah Iran thing. Yeah. Did you get any sense, you were young, but how bad it was? And how long did it take your family to realize it was a mistake to follow these other guys? Oh, it, it was almost instant. It was almost instant when my family came to regret it, um because they as I said, they were sort of uh sentimental liberals and secularists, and they just thought that uh if the shah go- goes away, um their ideas would come to dominate iran and uh of course that was wrong, and the Shah himself was so disconnected from his from the multitude of the people of what their of how, cons- how deeply conservative his people really were um uh that kind of secularization from above just doesn't work. Even in Turkey, where people would say, look, Adatürk did it. it. Well, it lasted for 100 years, um, but it's over now. And so, um, it, but, you know, the outcome was pretty apparent that it was a terrible regime almost instantly, at least to my family. I mean, I, I was born six years after the revolution, remember? So, yeah. And then, but, but by the way, as soon as the revolution happened, then the Iran-Iraq war happened. And uh, whatever energies the middle classes had to try to uh, stand up to Islamism were then diverted to defending Iran from sort of territorial violation by by Saddam so um, and the regime was able to con- consolidate its power thanks to the war in many ways yeah I'm interested in your experience um with uh, what you call the morality police back mm-hmm. in Iran, and how you distinguish in your mind between something like that, that kind of effort to, to yeah. manage morality, and something like what Catholic families and Catholic institutions like this one and other, other Christian institutions um, do in to help raise children and young adults. Mm-hmm. We insist
2: that our, mm-hmm. um, our men and women live in separate dorms, for mm-hmm. example, and obey a curfew and, mm-hmm. and um, not drink alcohol in the dorms, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do, in your mind, how do you
0: distinguish between Sort of those external efforts to impose yeah. morality uh, by the state on the yeah. one hand and by institutions and families on the other no I, the only um, the, the difference I think is that um, it, it, what's lacking in that system is reason it's just a set of of juridical norms that are brutally enforced, and by the way either they're brutally enforced or the, regi- the enforces of the norms themselves are totally hypocritical and will accept bribes. Um, but I have, you know, no problem with morality legislation based on, uh, things that obviously the Catholic faith teaches, but every, every great religious tradition has taught about, about the nature of marriage, about the nature of, of, uh, of the difference between sexes, the need between barriers between men and women. And, um, you know, the liberal order we've inherited—I don't want to get into the debate of whether it was inherent in the founding or whether it got distorted somewhere—has got this totally wrong. The degree, of the, the wide degree of birth that it gives to individual autonomy and for it to individual to decide what's good and true, will eventually lead to people saying, "Well, for me, good and true is actually I'm not Sorab; I'm Sabrina, and for me to fully exercise my autonomy requires you to call me Sabrina." And for every other institu- public institution to recognize me as Sabrina. Um, that's the sort of autonomism that's uh, deeply, deeply troubling. And I'm, I'm as troubled by it as, as you are. And yes, communities like this are great, but I, th- you know, I think we should also propose them in the public square. But again, the difference is that um, the, the God of the Bible is a reasonable God. And, and it's not just a sort of abstract man in the sky who chops your hand if you go the wrong way. Uh, so but that's a very good question because people pose it to me. It's like, oh, so you found, you've sort of rediscovered a kind of reactionary <laughs> attitude in your Catholicism that you do. So the, the university system at large, we look like we're imposing some kind of morality police life on our students. Yeah. So it's interesting to so first of all, I mean, first of all, it's voluntary and so on and so forth. But even if, I mean, even if it weren't, even if it, you know a community were to, in the U.S., were to vote to impose XYZ morality legislation, that's now been, uh, you know, eroded thanks to the sexual revolution. I would totally favor that. Yeah. And by the way, not not all of the things that Islam imposes are, you know, are are bad. You know, it, it, some of its moralities uh, are, are uh, strictures are very complementary with with Christian one.
2: Thank you very much. I have a couple questions. Sure. <laughs> how did your fan? How has your family received your conversion? Yeah. I uh, also uh, we met an Iranian man a few years ago who converted because d- he said Jesus visited him, mm-hmm. literally, mm-hmm. and that many Iranians are having conversions through dreams and visions yeah. and such. But he said it's quiet because their lives would be at stake. Yeah. Y- can you verify that?
0: Uh, let me. S- Start with the latter question. Um, well, I mean, I can't verify his his experience, uh, <laughs> um, but what I would say is that yes. Although I mentioned that, that if the Islamic Republic would were to collapse, it would leave behind a large community of atheists. Um, it's also true that man by nature is a is a religious creature who seeks communion with God, and there is um, there is great kind of. Evangelical ferment inside the country, much of it carried out on the ground, much of it carried out by evangelical Protestants, um, and the reason is that um, you know the, the Catholic Church doesn't officially proselytize in in Iran, and I understand why. The reason is that they have to. There is an indigenous Christian community that is the church's flock there, which is legally recognized and protected, sort of as a second class citizens, and if the church were to the Catholic Church were to evangelize in Iran it would put its its existing flock at, at physical risk so I understand that but yeah there is there is this movement and and um, that distinction is very important to the Iranian regime if you're one of the indigenous communities who are either in communion with Rome or with whichever Orthodox um, uh, 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 whichever Orthodox uh, church then they they you are protected you're um, you can worship and so forth, but you can't join the officer corps, and there are all sorts of other legal handicaps against you. Um, you. know, Whereas if you are a convert from Islam, because apostasy is punishable by death under Sharia law, and Sharia law forms the basis of the Iranian penal code, then they, you're at risk. But they never, they're savvy enough that they rarely bring people up on apostasy charges, because that looks bad PR-wise. So what they do is they um, charge you with... Um, propagating against the regime or endangering national security that those kinds of charges as to your point about my family my family is uh, like i said it was a very liberal secular family so at worst people have been indifferent at worst and at best perfectly welcoming and as i was telling you, my, my mother is a convert to she's a born-again evangelical but we went totally separate paths and in fact she converted in 2011 five years before i did and um even at the time, I was still outwardly professing to be an atheist. I was, I was sort of condescending to her. I was like, "Oh, you must be so lonely. This, this stuff gives you solace. I understand, you know." <laughs> but now we share a. Now we have a sectarian divide in our home. <laughs>
1: I'm very fascinated with just the reality of Islam in the world right now, mm-hmm. and obviously a great tolerance in the West for Islam. Mm-hmm. And then, sort of a growing kind of Islamic influence, mm-hmm. you know Europe parts of the world, and my question would be, well, in this country, we mm-hmm. see lots of seeds of a kind of resurgence of a sort of devout Catholicism you know mm-hmm. that's sort of manifested here. Mm-hmm. Do you see that, and maybe you don't even really know the answer to this, but do you th- do you see that in Islam, like a growing like authentically religious Islamic culture? I know one of my sons was always saying, you know a moderate islam or a religious muslim mm-hmm. is sort of a dangerous thing because they are sort of following those elements of the quran that mm-hmm. you know basically deny the freedom of the individual mm-hmm. um so my question would be do you see like a healthy version of a religious islamic culture or do you feel like where it's going is just this a religious person is the extremist and that's something that is trying to devour the West. I
0: mean, the, the revival has been happening in Islam since the 19th century. Islamism has, has roots as deep as that. It's a, in a way, it's a modernist intellectual movement too um, uh, that seeks advancement and modernity for the Islamic world by doubling down on traditional Islam in a weird way. Um, or, or, or using modern means, including modern Political totalitarian means and violence to to re-Islamize societies that that had um, you know uh, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire had no uh, it, it were sort of falling apart and, uh, and the West seemed so dominant so um, uh, comparatively you know, prosperous and so forth and the the way that Islamist thinkers thought that they would um, revive Islam's prospects is by Creating these Islamist movements. Um, and the nationalist and secular elements of, of certainly in the Middle East came after. In other words, Islamism is older than secularism and nationalism. Now, are there movements that are healthy? I don't know, because I'm not in that world, to be honest. Um, uh, I've only just begun, I, 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 I happen to be give, give a talk to something called the Thomistic Institute. And the question was or the debate was you know um, does politics need God and it sent me back to reading um the Regensburg address by Pope Benedict, which is a very prophetic and a profound document, completely misunderstood as a as a crude harangue against Islam when it really wasn't It really was uh, it directed mainly at at um well, the hellenization of christianity in the west the, the, the removal of the element of reason um and the the reasonableness that's cooked into the gospel itself, um, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, it, the way that the church has engaged with Islam over two millennia, with sword and scholarship both, is a lot more sophisticated, I think, sophisticated than um, either a kind of they're all unreasonable hordes, or a kind of liberal tolerance that doesn't take into account how aggressive Islam can really be. And so the, a document like the Regensburg Address I think is a really good way for, for Catholics to think about how they relate to Islam and why Christianity is different from Islam. Um, that's, a, uh, that's not a precise answer to your question, but it's really because I, I'm not in the Muslim world to know if you know, XYZ kind of movement that you're describing is happening or not. It's not my...
3: And I think really
1: basically I'm saying, is there such thing as a a healthy Muslim culture, you know, or is it like the, the threat of the East
0: to the West is that just a You know, I see a healthy Muslim culture in a place like the the Emirates, where, um, you know, it's very materialistic, and they're just hungry to to be uh, uh, loved by the West, so they, uh, you know. Pope Francis recently visited there, and I was on that trip um, following him around. And, you know, it was partly for them to showcase the fact that, look, the Christians there, you know, unlike Saudi Arabia, in the Emirates there are about 72 churches, and there's an active Catholic community that's made up of mainly the guest workers, Filipinos and and Nigerians and so forth, Um, and they signed a document with the Pope, um, and uh, uh, the sermons there are all written by the government. Like every Muslim in the, uh, in the Emirates hears the same sermon. And the reason is that it's, a co- it's written by a committee and handed out to all the imams, and it's ensured that there's no extremist messages in it. Now, that goes against all of our kind of liberal religious liberty instincts, but I was I'm like, thank God. And that's... <laughs> I have no problem with it. You know, it's, it, it, I, I've totally lost that uh, element of American conservatism that says we have to replicate our political forms everywhere. They're like decaying they here. Why are we, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how much more, you know, why lecture Egypt about, about, you know, how it's managing Islam and trying to tame Islam to make it more uh, uh, moderate? Those are the hopeful elements, but they're not coming from within Islam. They're coming from autocratic regimes who just want to survive. But from an American policymaking standpoint, it means to not be preachy all the time because the complexities of the world of Islam are really complex and, and our religious liberty, religious liberty, 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 liberty mon- mindset doesn't, doesn't often help over there. Yeah.
2: Thank you. You talked about history being uh, like an arrow in the minds of modern life now, yeah. where.
0: Uh, well, history is an arrow, there's an arrow of time. Yeah, so, oh, and, and this is, is 2019,
2: yes. so get with it. And, and um, we, we seem to be living in an unprecedented time of hostility to um, anything that's behind the arrow. Yes. Um, and, and we see the tribalism that's forming, the hardening of the positions. Yes. I, I, good grief, you, you're with the New York Post. I, I can't even imagine the hate mail that you get uh, from time to time. I love mail, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> It, is this getting worse, or is there a way out of this? And where do you see that going? Because um, yeah. it, it it doesn't seem like a, a softening of the the um, the hostility is in, in the near future.
0: Yeah, but, the, but the, I mean, my hope—the thing that makes me both hopeful and optimistic—is that the most timeless questions uh, that are posed to every human life by the fear of death, the fear of God, what is good and evil—will never go away, and and so i think that for us as catholics in an age of so much confusion and tribalism as you said we don't go across uh, our, our thinking isn't across a progress reaction continuum that's how the sort of liberal mind thinks progress reaction if it's just if it's going back to something it must be bad if it's going forward to something else whatever that however horrific that might be it's good that's the sort of, and that's what I mean by the, the the arrow of time itself ratifies an idea. Just the fact that it comes, so you know, w- ours is true false, and I think pe- people understand true false. And so the old truths can always be reproposed, maybe change the language or whatever but to fit, fit the need, needs of the age. But that gives me great confidence because people want the truth. But it's—I mean—it's hard to break through the culture, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Because partly because our media culture also has that limitation, where it, it can only deal because it's—it's it's a product of a technocratic, scientific worldview that only says that the only questions worth asking and answering are ones with that either we can answer with our senses or we can answer or measure with our instruments. Um, so it deals with facts, but it—it it doesn't have. It has trouble processing truth, especially moral truth. The fact that you can reason about morality is very difficult for our uh, for our media culture as well. And that's a the media in that sense is both a reflection but also a cause of this of the crisis.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, Just briefly. Uh, do you have any advice for someone who aspires towards a career in journalism, particularly like opinion or editorial journalism that I know you do?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll boil it down because the panel yesterday, um, don't go to journalism school. It's a complete, I have no idea why people spend 50, 70, 100,000 dollars because journalism is not a, it's not a science that requires a master's degree. It's a craft, okay? You need, um, you need a certain base Rat like instinct for sussing out information out of people and court documents and so forth you need a uh, and then you need to be able to string sentences together with subject verb agreement that's that's the, that's the journalism part of it so I think it's much more important to to gain insight into either one thing to gain expertise or learn just by doing do the gumshoe reporting and it might be in here in Santa Paulo or wherever where you actually pick up the phone and find a story and develop sources and build up enough of a portfolio that you can then go and pitch because there are still jobs in in journalism they look often they look different than mine in, in the sense that the print journalism is complicated and it's gotten it's gotten ever it's ever squeezed in some ways financially but there are even at print kind of the traditional print outlets, are still jobs. And the way into them is to develop a portfolio and a, and some or some expertise or both. Now, that how do you gain that? You, either, you like I said, report locally, uh, travel for a couple of years and pick up a language that you can, then you can always, you know, Spanish or whatever that you can then relay for a, a U.S.-based audience and so forth. All of that is much more useful than, than going to J school. Start, yeah.
1: Um, Thank you for coming, and I had a question relating to your comment about, um, when you were answering the first question, about being a good witness, Um, and I had some practical questions, just, do you have any practical advice, like, we're obviously in a good, strong Catholic community here, and then the students are part of, you know, mostly a Catholic student body, but as a convert yourself, were there any people that stood out to you as good witnesses and then you're in a public position in a more secular environment than we are obviously, and I wonder, do you have any practical advice for how we would carry what we have here to the world as a good witness and not be preachy?
0: Um, That's a very good question. Um, First, whether I had people who were witnesses, yes. I don't write about about him in the book um, because it's There are limitations to a book, but um, before I ever became Catholic, I went out um, to. I was in London at the time, and you know, around we have a feature in the Wall Street Journal called the Weekend Interview, which is a kind of in-depth interview. We illustrate, like, get an illustration of the subject of an interview. And around Easter, it was a good time for it. I went out and saw Jean Vanier, who's I don't know if you know the founder of the. He's a, a Canadian, both Catholic theologian, but he 's also a, a humanitarian and he 's a founder of the movement called LASH, which brings people with disabilities and their non disabled peers to live together and obviously there's the without ever him saying it, although he does, but he doesn 't need to it 's a great witness against the culture of death because as I write in the book, one of the things that one of the things that made me like have a horror of contemporary society was a society of the what I call the society of the euthanasia chamber, the test tube baby, and the, um, uh, 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 the abortion clinic, right? The idea that um, even life's greatest mysteries, sex, birth, death, are become under man's full scientific dominion, and therefore certain types of life become, dis- you know, discardable. Just give me the willies, and I just, there's no other Institution across the West that's a real barrier, a bulwark against this than than the Catholic Church, but that sounds preachy. Whereas what Vanier does is he brings people who are not disabled and non-disabled they live together, and the idea is is not that the what they're called assistants, who are the non-disabled folks, are just helping and they 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 just serve. They do serve, but they gain something from the people with disabilities. They learn that. Um, you know, uh, uh, that, as he says, they're people of the heart, and it allows the typical Western up wound-up millennial who's just in his head to encounter, or her head, to encounter this other person who, who loves and wants love. Uh, so I wrote about him, you know, I was already on the way to Catholicism, so I picked him as a subject, but that's the kind of way. so what does that mean? It also means, therefore, for, for me, and for you, and for everyone, is, is to just follow, you know, Pope Francis's you know, Go out to the peripheries, and he doesn't necessarily just mean uh, the material peripheries, like the, the poor, of course the poor as well, but the spiritual peripheries. Uh, I think that's very important, and you gain from it, and without, as you said, without being preachy, although you can be preachy too if you're sophisticated about it, um, you, will, you will be a witness.
3: I was wondering, um, because you
2: have been in uh, what you think about just
3: one second. Um, because of your stay in London and so forth, um, uh, what your impression of uh, the acceptance of um, of Muslim in England is? Uh, it, it seems to be. Um, Quite acceptable now. I mean, in many ways, uh, you can be a politician and be a Muslim, and yeah. nobody blinks. And I mean,
0: uh, in that, in, in that sense it's a, uh, you know, it's a testament to it being a perfectly tolerant place as far as some identities go. I mean, I, I, I don't begrudge Muslims the fact that they found ex- acceptance across Europe, um, uh, but. Uh, uh, it's the fact that if you are uh, Christian, sometimes you won't find the same welcome. Um, But uh, no, on the whole, I mean, uh, look, uh, Muslims in Britain just helped at least dent the government's, this is a Tory, supposedly conservative government, had had an education agenda that included teaching very young children about LGBT, trans stuff, Mm-hmm. and you know unfortunately the the bishops in uh, England and Wales didn't say much. They yeah. did it was the mm-hmm. it was the muslims in I mean, birmingham.
3: The sharia law is kind of
0: um, Yeah, I mean that, that's part interesting of interesting to them <laughs> or so something. Would, yes, uh, and, and so they objected to it and and, and helped at least sort of do the pushback against it because um yeah. But but I, I would say look, muslims in Europe would be the problem would be easier if European countries were more civilizationally confident. In other words, you can, you can absorb other people if you know who you are.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: A lot of the confusion, and this I'm sort of paraphrasing Pierre Manon, who's a great French philosopher, a lot of the confusion comes from the fact that when, when the Muslim other looks at Europe, they see the cross. Whereas Muslims, th- Europeans themselves often think they just stand for nothing—a sort right. of mm-hmm. multicultural, secular, just a mm. set of procedural norms and ever, ever expanding markets and ever integrating, blah blah blah—and yeah. and, and it, so it's it's a very virile, traditional, energetic civilization that comes into contact with a nothing, with like mm-hmm. Jean-Claude Juncker, right? Right. Yeah. What, is, what, is he, what does he stand for what, you know? and that's the problem I think we, the encounter between Islam and Europe could be a lot it could be eased and there would be balance restored to it and it would be good for both parties if Europeans themselves acknowledge their Judeo-Christian heritage and then there would, nice. would, would be a balance between the two sides but yeah. as it is a sort of deracinated liquid modernity versus Islam mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. is stronger, it's demographically stronger it's, right. it has a vision of the world and it's, in a way, it's respectable in that sense compared to Junkerism. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: <clears throat> yeah. There's one over there. Yeah.
1: So um, did you experience when you were young um, a existing, like, um, distrust or disregard for the church in... Um, Iran or like did you, did you know Catholics or Christians in general in no, the I I had an community?
0: Armenian nanny who was orthodox and always lived with an old lady they were both pretty old who was a uh, uh, an Armenian catholic you know there's an Armenian catholic church um, and no we had uh, it's not, we had no disdain or distress for them it was they were like you know if you Armenians were who you went to to buy wine because they had or 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 salami and so forth right and, you, you, it's, you know, the joke was that you go to, like, the guy whose name would be typically, like, Martin or Martin. And you say, like, do you have that stuff that if we drink, we get flogged? Which <laughs> means, like, yeah. alcohol. <laughs> 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 um, and, and, and so, in a sense, in the sen- because as I write in the book, I had a sort of shallow fascination with the West. And w- the West just meant kind of rationality and modernity and uh, a kind of superficial kind of freedom. Uh, and in that sense there was a exoticization of the local Armenians like my mom and I would go along with my nanny to the to her church and kind of be reverent about it and admire it and maybe even believe in that moment in a way that a child might believe in God in that sense um, so no, no disdain it was a kind of just like it's fascinating and it's great and they have salami you know <laughs> 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 That's, but, I, I mean, you're talking to someone who left when he was 14, so my impressions, in a way, are still kind of childish ones. Yeah, so,
1: like, but when you came to um, America, then it seems like you, uh, at first,
0: regarded
1: oh, yes. the beauty of modernity ma- yes. with atheism. I will only opposed.
0: preview that, and then hopefully you'll le- read the book. I, so w- w- I thought it, we were going to come to something like Manhattan, you know, and the Manhattan you see in the movies um, when I was in Iran. Now, imagine my surprise. We, so once we finally got our green card, we boarded a KLM Royal Dutch Airlines flight, and uh, we flew to Amsterdam for a layover. Then we flew from Amsterdam to a place called Minneapolis, whatever that meant. <laughs> we didn't stop in Minneapolis. Then we took another flight to a place called Salt Lake City. And then we, then we didn't stop in Salt Lake City. Then my uncle, who had lived there for many years, put us in a van, and then we drove up an hour and a half to a ca- town called um, Eden, Utah, population 600, uh, all Mormon. Uh, so I almost instantly came to, like instantly came to then a kind of shallow anti-Americanism because the Americanism then turned out to be A, not secular, but, but pretty faithful, but in a kind of strange religion, and not, not urban, and not, but, but provincial, not uh, chic and, and, and modern, but communitarian and sort of jello potluck's hate it all Hated it all and, it, and you'll see how that affected my view of the US in the book yeah What? what's this about some, uh, salami is it pork or something well, it's that. yeah yeah it, was, it, it wasn't even I don't think it was really pork but it was just it, it, it was imitation you know whatever like but still it was it was the Armenian shops that sold it so that was legal it wasn't but it was it was just that's where they sold it typically yeah the delis <laughs> yeah
3: Thank you for being here. Yeah. Um, many years ago, when my husband was in graduate school, we met um, an I- Iranian family that were here studying also in graduate school, yeah. and they left Iran at this about the same time that the Shah mm-hmm. was told to leave. <laughs> yeah. um, they were they left because they wanted the intellectual freedom to study here. Mm-hmm. But they were shocked or surprised about the immorality in our country. They had young children. They yeah. d- did not want to watch American yeah. television. Um, did you encounter very many people like that in Iran and all um, who kind of were kind of in between the the hardcore Muslims mm-hmm. and the totally secular? Iranians who want to maintain a morality in their families but don't buy into the
0: yeah I think it's a lot that describes a lot of a lot of folks I mean various people in my family we we ranged from my father who was a total kind of libertine bohemian to you know my grandfather who wasn't that devout but had reservations about you know American movies and that was a spectrum yeah but I personally, I mean, obviously, I I, lo- I loved the the hedonism on on display. And when I came to Utah, I was like, "Hey, what is this?" Okay, yeah. so
3: you you didn't necessarily have a problem then with the the immorality of our culture here no, in America? No, no, I loved okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: that's the Odyssey in the book. Yeah. yeah. All right. Ah, oh, I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.